Bible, we're going to be in the uh, book of Joshua. You can turn there, uh, Joshua chapter 5. And Casey, I really appreciate you reminding me just how much shorter I am than you with this all the way up here. We're at the uh, end of our monster series. We, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll wrap it up actually uh, next week. And so we're trying to wrap up this idea of what does it mean to live at peace with those things inside of ourselves that we want to run and hide from? What does it mean to live at peace with that? And part of what that means is being able to live at peace with those around you and the monsters that they have, even if that's really hard for us to do. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would... Give us the eyes to see your word. Give us the ears to hear and give us the strength to walk in the path that you call us down. Even if it means us having to confront things in our lives that we'd like to push away from. We pray this in your name. Amen. So there's a story in Luke chapter 9. The disciples asked Jesus a question that makes a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, Here's what happened. In Luke chapter 9, the disciples say, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. And I get what the disciples are saying. They say, we don't know who this person is, so we want to stop them because we like to have a clearly defined line. Good guy, bad guy, hero, villain, in, out, protagonist, antagonist. We have a line and we want everyone to fit on the right side of it. Who's in, who's out. And I get this. I have a small propensity for lines being straight. If any of you were with Venture while we used to meet at the uh, Crown of Her Middle School, there's a few of you who might have noticed that on occasion I would obsessively make sure the chairs were lined up straight. I feel like that's a normal thing to do. At Grand Traditions, they don't have tile floor, but at Crown Over, they had a tile floor, which means it was very easy to determine if the lines were straight or not. We had a few different custodians who the uh, school would actually, uh, well, we would actually pay them, but they would come up from the school system and they would set out the chairs. And there was a few that I had ranked highest to lowest in terms of my favorite based on their ability to line up chairs. And I don't think that's wrong. I feel like if there's lines on the floor, your, your chairs should be able to pass a field sobriety test. Not everyone agrees with me on that, but I think that's very normal. If you want things right, they, need, they should be right. There's something about lines that are very comforting to people. And it's not that I'm obsessive compulsive. It's not. Many people have to touch every door in their house before they go to bed at night. It's not that I'm OCD, okay? It's very normal. There's just something about lines. You want them to be straight. If things are supposed to be one way, they should be that. And the disciples have that same thing. They want to know, where does everyone fit on the line? Are they in or they out? Are they the good guy or bad guy? Are they a victim or a villain? They want to know where everyone fits on the line. And that makes perfect sense. Is there anything more disorienting when you're experiencing a story, you're reading a book or you're watching a movie, and the person you thought all along was the hero turns out to be the heel? Nothing's more disorienting than that. You thought all along this was the hero, she was the hero, but it turns out she's actually the bad guy. And you go, whoa, I'm confused. Because we all like lines. We like to know, are you in, are you out? Are you good, are you bad? The problem is we're not always as good at drawing the lines as we think we are. I'm not a a blogger. I um, 
I don't do it very often, uh, but I was, uh, I was asked to write for a Christian blog a few months ago, and I was pressured into doing this, and so I did. And part of the blog, I went on that little rant I did about the chairs being lined up and how chairs should be straight, as the Lord intends. And so that was part of my rant, and I talked about how in church we like things to be all right, and that's kind of the problem that causes some people to say, I'm not religious, I just have a relationship, because you know religion sometimes has... I don't know, people who drop the ball. And so I went on this rant about how we like everything to be straight. I like everything to be straight. And then, then the comments start rolling in. And this is the reason I don't blog. Because you can write a blog that's like this long, and you get comments criticizing your blog. They're like twice as long. For example, like this one right here. This is one of the comments. Um, our friend Brian Bertram, not that I'm bitter about this, and that's why I'm talking about it in my sermon three months later. But anyway, Brian writes, Luke. While I appreciate that you are protecting familiar territory, I frankly don't see anything relevant in your words. That's really nice, okay? Because he starts off and he says, Luke, I want you to know I really appreciate you, but your words are not relevant at all. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate you. You're relevant in my life too. Okay, so let's go to this next comment right here. Uh, This is from a friend named Kenton's, Kenton's, uh, plural Kenton's, I guess. Great post, Luke. Again, we're off to the right start here. This is a good one. BTW, by the way, there's a great irony in your line. Quote, the problem is life will not always be lined up straight. It uh, does not um, line up straight. I guess in my propensity to talk about how I want things straight, I didn't use the right spelling of the word straight. So I go in this rant about how I like everything to be straight, but I myself don't even spell the word straight correctly. How ironic is that? I go in this rant about how everything needs to be lined up straight, but I don't even spell the word straight correctly. Thanks, Kentons. Much appreciation for that one. We like lines. We like things to be in or out, good guy, bad guy, hero, villain. But the problem is we can't draw the lines nearly as well as we think we do. I was watching this uh, HGTV House Hunters International show 18 months ago, and I can't forget. I love the show. It's a nice show. And this one episode I couldn't forget because there's this woman from the States who went to this tropical island and said, I want a new home, but it's very important for me for this house to have a small ecological footprint. And so she goes from house to house. The first house doesn't have the right kind of light bulb she likes. So she says, I can't have this house because it has the wrong light bulbs. The next house has the wrong kind of stove. I don't know if she wanted gas or electric. I don't remember. All I know is she says, no, too big of an ecological footprint. And then so she decides that she doesn't want either of those houses. So what she wants, because those houses leave too big of an ecological footprint, is she decides she's going to buy two acres of rainforest, tear it down and build a house. And put the right light bulbs in the right stove in it. And I'm going, what are you talking about? It's like I have a friend in grad school who uh, was the most outspoken pacifist I knew. Most outspoken pacifist, did not like violence at all. But he was uh, hired by the ACU football team to help run some off-season training for the football players to learn martial arts. This guy had a martial arts background, which every pacifist should. And so he's teaching these football players basic martial arts, taekwondo stuff. And that comes to an abrupt end because he beat up a football player. 
and he's a pacifist. And you go, oh, just forget it, man. Okay. We love to draw lines about who's in and out, what's right and wrong. But the problem is we don't draw them nearly as straight as we think we do. A lady named Catherine Schultz wrote a book entitled Being Wrong. It's a great book. And she talks about how in the English language, it is a logical impossibility for you to continually be wrong. The way that the word wrong works in the English language really only functions in the past tense. She talks about this as the Heisenberg uncertainty principle of error. So if I thought this shirt, this nice shirt, which Austin commented on how much he likes it. If I thought this shirt was green and I said, I'm wrong about the color of the shirt, which I think it's green, it's actually black. It would be a logical impossibility for me to say that in the present tense. Because the second I realize that I'm wrong about my thought about the color of it, the word has to become a past tense word. Because now I know it's a different color. So it has to be I was wrong. Even the English language fails us because it makes us have a greater sense of our ability to get things right than we actually have. We like there to be lines, just like the disciples did. But the problem is, no matter how good we are, or how good we think we are at drawing a straight line, we just aren't that good. Which is good news for us, because God doesn't always seem to fit in the lines that we want to draw. There's this real interesting story from Joshua chapter 5. Where Joshua, the leader of, in his mind, the Lord's army, is surprised by this angel. And this is what happens. Once when Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you one of us or or one of our adversaries? He replied, neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. Now, Joshua's question seems to be a really logical question. If you all of a sudden are surprised by someone standing in front of you, you're about to go to battle, your enemy is over there, you're right here, your camp is behind you, your enemy and their camp is over there, and you see someone you don't recognize, the logical question is to ask, are you for us? Are you against us? Are you with us? Are you trying to hurt us? It's the same question the disciples were asking years later. I don't know if this guy's for us or against us. And so Joshua asked the question, are you for us or against us? And the messenger of the Lord says, neither. Whatever camp you try to put me in, I don't fit there. Now, we don't have battles like that today. We don't have enemies right in front of us and behind. We don't have that. But what we do have is office drama. We all know what that's like. You can imagine you go to work and something happens and one person gets upset and the other person retaliates and person number two's friend who just retaliated joins their side and all of a sudden you've got the jets and the sharks in your office and you have your modern day version of the of West Side Story in which your office is divided and, and this person's this way and bar's over there and everyone's fighting back and forth. And what we want to do in those situations is, well, let's get someone on our side. And can you imagine what would happen if somehow God showed up? The question you would ask in the middle of your own West Side story is, God, whose side are you on? You're on my side or their side? Or, 
or, or maybe the couple that goes into marriage counseling. And unlike most couples who go into marriage counseling, the very act of choosing to spend time talking and working on your marriage causes your marriage to improve. But unlike that normal situation, this couple's not having any luck. And so they sit down in front of the counselor and they tell her, well, my wife does this. And then your wife tells the counselor, well, my husband does that. And you go back and forth. And at the end, you want to say, who's right? Which side are you on? And I imagine if God showed up, he would say the same thing that he said to Joshua. Neither. I'm on neither person's side. Despite our propensity to draw a line and say, good guy, bad guy, hero, villain, protagonist, antagonist, God says neither, no matter how much we like to do that. Donald Miller in his new book tells a story about meeting a democratic political strategist at a backyard barbecue when he's living in D.C. And he meets this guy and he starts asking what he does for a living. And as he describes what he does for a living, Miller notices a little bit of conviction in this guy. Uh, This guy's describing his job, and a lot of what he does is the attack campaigns you see right around election times, and which, in his words, they ruthlessly tell lies to assassinate someone else's character. And he starts to, to, to sense, Dollar Miller does, starts to sense that this guy has a little bit of guilt about what he's doing. And this Democratic political strategist says, the worst part about it is that I have seen good men get their character ruthlessly assassinated and for them to break down into tears. He's feeling guilty because it's so easy to tell these lies and people get their lives ruined. Because what we want to do is we want to have a line. And if you're on this side of the political spectrum, well, you're a demon. And if you're on that side, well, you're a hero. And this political strategist goes on to say, the scariest thing is how easy it is to convince the American people that a perfectly good man is a demon. It's so easy for us to believe that because we want to draw a line in the sand. And we want to say this is in or out, good or bad, right or wrong. And I wonder if the reason that, that God, through Jesus, encourages us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us is because our ability to determine who really is an enemy isn't nearly as good as we think it is. Because no matter how good we think we are at drawing the line, it's never nearly as straight as we think it is. Now, the thing about that story from Joshua 5 that's so weird is, like in the Old Testament, God is typically for Israel and he's against all their enemies. And so for Joshua to say, are you for us or against us, is a really logical question asked because usually, just about every other time, God clearly is on one side. God's always for Israel. God's always against her enemies. <clears throat> so it's a weird story. It's almost as if it's foreshadowing where the story's going. It's almost like it's foreshadowing what God is going to eventually do in Jesus. You remember the story from John chapter 8. A woman is caught in adultery. She's brought in front of the whole town. And everyone picks up a stone to kill her. Just as the Old Testament law said they were supposed to. And Jesus interrupts it and bends down the ground, scribbles something. And then he says, any of you who is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Of course, the older people leave before the younger people, the people with more self-awareness, realize just how guilty they are themselves. 
But we never know what like Jesus wrote when he, he got down on the ground and started scribbling something. And so it's all just guesswork, really. But I, I don't know what he wrote, but I know what was accomplished by what he said is that that line between good and bad got blurred. Just like when the angel of the Lord said, I'm not on anyone's side, I'm, I'm neither. I'm not for you, I'm not against you, I'm neither. Your lines do not fit what I'm trying to do. Because at the heart of it, the line of good and evil is never between you and your boss. The line of good and evil is never between you and your ex. The line of good and evil is never between you and that neighbor who doesn't rake her leaves. The line of good and evil always runs down right the through the middle of us. The line of good and evil is not between you and them. It's always down the middle of yourself. And this is unfortunately like the theology that we should have got when we watched Scooby-Doo, right? Did anyone here watch Scooby-Doo when you were a kid? Anyone? Anyone watch Scooby-Doo when you're like 20? Uh, if you do, you probably had a marijuana problem, okay? Um, just side note, that's free. But the... Like, we should have learned from Scooby-Doo is this basic principle happens. Like, every episode, the person who you think is the bad guy, the person who you thought, well, she's the villain, at the end, she would have gotten away if it wasn't for the, the dog and his pesky friends. But they find this person, they go behind the curtain, they take off the mask, and who turns out to be the villain? It's not the person you thought it was all along. It's someone else. Because the line of good and evil, it's never between us and them. It's always right down the middle of me. Because evil, as Jesus says, it's not what you put into your mouth, but what comes out of your mouth. Because evil flows from the heart. The human heart is a great idol factory, but it's also a monster factory. It creates evil that we all have inside of ourselves. And the reason we don't pick up stones to throw at other people is because that line of good and evil runs right down us. And we all have our own reasons that people should say, oh, you're a villain. And we all have our own reasons why someone should say, you're a hero. And so our propensity to draw the line should be pushed away from because we never draw it right. It's always a lot more complicated than we think. Now, now I say that, and obviously, if someone was sexually abused when they were a kid, it's not their fault, okay? There are exceptions. If you're, if you're driving home and a drunk driver hits you, it's, it, it's not your fault, okay? And there are times in which we start to to hear these messages about how everything's blurred and, and it can be abused. Like my brother, I've told you this story, he was in a tattoo parlor and, a, and he's, he's in this tattoo parlor getting this ugly tattoo he got when he was 18 covered up and a, a gunman walks in and opens fire on the place and starts shooting at my brother. Like it's not, it's not a gray area with that specific incident. It's not my brother's fault. It, it's his fault he had the ugly tattoo, yes, but it's not his fault the gunman shot at him, okay? But for the most part... Most of our day-to-day conflicts that we deal with, it's not as clearly delineated as we want it to be. Because in the stew that is the conflict that we all eat from, we typically add our own ingredients to it. The conflict at work, you've probably done something to that yourself. And when you go to the marriage counselor and you say, well, this is what's wrong with my spouse, you've got to realize that you've perpetuated that too. Because we all have our monsters. We all have our brokenness. We all have the ways in which our humanity is displayed, and it's not always pretty. And so our line of good and bad and right and wrong, we shouldn't do that so much. 
So the, the first thing I think we should do is, is look at ourselves, right? Like that's the, the lesson from this is that you look at yourself before you want to ask which side God's on. Uh, there was a gentleman in church history named uh, St. Athanasius who said, before we, can make stri- we cannot make straight in someone else's life what is crooked in our own. Like you, you can't make straight in someone else's life what's already off in your own life. So stop and look at yourself. Like that's the first thing you always do. Because we all have our own monsters that we're carrying around with us. And second is you need to listen and hear someone else's story before you just typecast them as the bad guy in your story. I've got this neighbor who um, has got a dog, and he, so he walks, he's outside often. And there's a handful of neighbors that I have who walk their dogs. And most of them are, just about all of them are friendly, except this one person. And this one guy had this dog that was a puppy, and now it's like this massive dog. And every day he walks by, and whenever I see him, I say, hey, what's up, man, how's it going? And he d- gives me this number. Like every day, he's like my age. I say, hey, what's up, man, how's it going? Just walks right by, walks right by. And it would be easy for me to look at him and go, you're a bad guy. I'm clearly a good guy here, right? It'd be very easy to do that. I don't know anything about him. All I know is he's got this big dog and he doesn't like to say hi. He walks by every time and I say, hey, how's it going? He just, nothing. I mean, it, it couldn't be that I like was rude to him. That's just not a possibility, of course. It's, he's clearly the wrong person. And after uh, a few months of this, I uh, was driving by and I, I saw the place where, where he lives and I saw a truck parked in front of his house. And it had like a weird logo in the license plate. And so I kind of slowed down and I looked at it. And it was, a, um, it was like a circular metal thing. It had a, a purple ribbon connected to it. And so I looked a little closer at it. And what it said is uh, Purple Heart Award winner or something. I don't know how you say that. Purple Heart uh, Disabled Veteran. Purple Heart Disabled Veteran. And so I thought... They don't give those away unless you're in the middle of some pretty hairy stuff. And I don't know what he did to receive that. I don't know how he got that on his truck's license plate, but I'm assuming he's been through some stuff that I've never even imagined. And so maybe if that means for him he doesn't like to talk to people and small talk's not his thing, that's all right. No matter if I like to draw a line and say, well, obviously you're rude to me, so you're a bad person. As I get to know his story more, even though I don't really know a whole lot about him, I shouldn't judge him. Like, I think that's the important thing is you realize that we all have our part to the conflict. And the most important thing we can do is not put someone on one side or the other, but learn to hear their story. Because we all know parts of ourselves should cause us to be on each side of the line. So maybe we learn to listen to people. We're at the part in our service where we're going to celebrate the Eucharist or communion or Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. And one of the reminders that we experience when we go to these tables and we remember the story of Jesus, the death, burial, and the resurrection, how we are connected to this, and this is the center of who we are as people. One of the things that we are reminded of is as you stand at this table to receive communion, when you're in a posture of receiving, you can't hold a stone in your hand. You have to lay those things down. And you might want to throw a stone at someone else, but you can't throw a stone when your hand is open to receive the body and the blood of Jesus. Maybe that's a good reminder for how we should always encounter one another with our hands open. Let's pray.
God, my prayer is that we would learn to befriend the things inside of us that others would know if they knew and they would call us a villain. The protagonist would be them and we would be the antagonist. They would be the hero and we would be the villain. Help us to know that that's part of us so that when we see others and their brokenness is revealed, that we would have humility and that we would be willing to listen instead of drawing the line. And as we gather around these tables, let us remember that you love not just one of us. You don't just love us individually, but the Father's love is great for all of us. And let us all receive this great love of the Father together. Bless in your name.